This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Each year, as we in the United States approach the July 4th national holiday, much is heard regarding the blessings of America and the positive impact these blessings have had on Jewish history. As this podcast did on the eve of July 4th last year, and as others have done and will do again, there also usually are examinations of the biblical origins of some of the concepts of liberty, most of which are found in the Torah itself, that make this country the land of the free. Rarely discussed, though, is whether America has been good for the Jews and Judaism overall. The answer depends on one's own point of view. What can't be denied is that the great experiment that is America posed unique problems for Judaism. And so the topic for this Erev July 4th edition is, is America really good for the Jews? The easy answer is, of course, America is really good for the Jews. Where else in the world, and when else in world history, have we as a people thrived the way we do here, reaching to the highest heights? Bill Clinton, the 42nd president of the United States, has a Jewish son-in-law. The 45th president not only has a Jewish son-in-law, but he has a Jewish daughter and three Jewish grandchildren. Every one of the 46th president's children are married to Jews, and as Joe Biden has said many times, it was his Jewish grandchildren who convinced him to run for president in the first place. And of course, this country's second gentleman is Jewish, and his wife, the vice president of the United States, is known affectionately within their family as Mamala Kamala. Mamala Kamala. Then there are the 11 Jewish notables Biden chose for top government positions, including four cabinet members, Anthony Blinken at State, Merrick Garland at Justice, Janet Yellen at Treasury, and Alejandro Mayorkas at Homeland Security. Biden's chief of staff is Jewish, so is his director of national intelligence and the deputy CIA director, among others. Whoever heard of such a thing anywhere else in the world at any other time in the history of the world? So yes, America has been good for the Jews. But has it? Really? That depends on the criteria being used to judge what is good. Before getting into why America should be good for us, let's consider the current state of Jewish identity in the United States. Just what does it mean to be Jewish in America? A year-old Pew Research Center survey of more than 4,700 Jews across the United States estimates that as of 2020, 2.4% of U.S. adults are Jewish. In absolute numbers, this means that Jews make up approximately 7.5 million people in the United States, including 5.8 million adults and 1.8 million children. Overall, just over a quarter of U.S. Jewish adults, 27%, don't identify with the Jewish religion in any way. They consider themselves to be Jewish ethnically, 
culturally or because they were born that way, but they described themselves as atheist, agnostic, or, quote, nothing in particular, unquote, but they don't describe themselves as being Jewish. It gets worse. Among Jewish adults ages 19 to 29, 40% describe themselves as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. Most young people in this, as the Pew survey calls them, Jews of no religion group, also say they don't have much, if anything, in common with their peers who do identify with religion in some way. This frightening statistic is also reflected when it comes to overall religious affiliation. The two branches of Judaism that long predominated in the United States, conservative and reform, have less of a hold on young Jews today than they have on their elders. Only roughly 40% of Jewish adults under 30 identify with either reform or conservative Judaism, compared with 70% of Jews ages 65 and older. This trend bodes ill for the Jewish future in the United States. As for feeling free in America, three-quarters of the Jews surveyed say there's more anti-Semitism in the United States today than there was just five years ago, and just over half, 53%, say that, quote, as a Jewish person in the United States, unquote, they feel less safe than they did five years ago. The good news of sorts in this is that feeling less safe hasn't stopped 95% of those who feel less safe from attending a Jewish event or observance. For my listeners in Canada, by the way, the situation there is not much better. There are approximately 392,000 Jews in Canada roughly 1% of the population, and 87% are concentrated in just six metropolitan areas in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Ottawa, and Calgary. According to the 2018 Survey of Jews in Canada, using survey data collected from over 2,200 Jewish respondents, two-thirds of Canadian Jews say that being Jewish is very important in their lives, with most of the other one-third saying that it's at least somewhat important. But only 30% say that Judaism as a religion is important to them. And yet another 30% don't identify with any particular type of Judaism. And some of that 30% say they are, quote, just Jewish, unquote. As for Jews feeling freer in Canada than Jews do here in the United States, that's not the case. According to the government-run Statistics Canada, hate crimes against Jews accounted for the highest number of religious-based hate crimes in the country between 2017 and 2019, the last period for which statistics have been released. There were 296 incidents in that period compared to the 181 incidents of religious-based hate crimes reported against the second-highest group, Canadian Muslims. Earlier surveys have also shown that Jews are the targets of choice for hate crimes. Experts predict this year will see a serious uptick, which they attribute to the recent Gaza war. It shouldn't be this way, at least not in the United States. At no other time in world history, and in no other place, 
did religion of any variety find more fertile ground for free expression than it did here from 1776 onwards. This was true for Christian sects, certainly, but it was also true for Judaism. As Brandeis University history professor Jonathan Sarna explains, quote, The world of American religion opened up with the leveling of restrictive colonial laws and monopolistic church establishments extending the boundaries of legitimate faiths to embrace Jews in new ways. Privileges once accorded only to favored denominations of Protestants now applied far more broadly, unquote. Sarna identified the five principles of American democracy that, quote, proved particularly important, unquote, to that development. Religious freedom comes first followed by church-state separation, which in turn was followed by denominationalism, which Sarna describes as, quote, the religious situation created in a land of many Christian churches and sects when none of them occupies a privileged situation and each has an equal claim to status, unquote. In the fourth position is voluntarism, meaning, in Sarna's words, the principle that people are free to choose their religious beliefs and associations without any kind of coercion, be it political, ecclesiastical, or communal. And finally, in fifth place, there's patriotism. Says Sarna, quote, collectively known as the great tradition of the American churches, these principles, even if sometimes honored in the breach, shape the contours of American religion forever after. Sooner or later, every American faith adapted to them, unquote, Judaism included. Was there a price to pay for Judaism's adapting to, quote, the contours of American religion, unquote? Indeed, there was, according to Michael A. Meyer, a longtime professor of history at the Reform Movement's Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. It's a long quote, so bear with me. Quote, there was no government control over religion, no conservative established church to set the pattern of religious life. A multitude of denominations and sects competed for adherence in a free market of religions. There were no officially recognized communities, no effective means for enforcing religious conformity. Among the early Jewish settlers in America, disregard for Jewish observance was rampant and mixed marriage not infrequent. One was not born into a Jewish community, as in Europe, but affiliated, or not, with a particular synagogue. Religion was less a heritage carried with little reflection from generation to generation than a conscious voluntary choice. Because America was so different from Europe, it often seemed that the inherited traditional Judaism was an old-world phenomenon, and out of place in the New World, unquote. Proof of Meyer's contention can be found in a pre-Passover sermon delivered in 1836 by the Orthodox European-trained Rabbi Isaac Leeser to his supposedly Orthodox congregants at Philadelphia's Mikvah Israel. His words are no less true today than they were 185 years ago. It's another long quote. Quote, we hear it alleged that our fathers were ignorant, but that we in a more enlightened age should be above their prejudices. Now, 
no one will gainsay the evident fact that this age has made improvements upon the discoveries of former periods, but it is utterly denied that in moral sciences the smallest advance has been achieved. When the name of Jew was a passport to ill treatment, when we were oppressed in the whole world, when many tears and few joys were our lot, we were cheerful, willing servants to God. But now enlargement has been given to us. Persecution for opinion's sake is no longer the fashion, and especially in this land, we can worship God without let or hindrance. We here have a perfect equality with the other inhabitants, Yet here it is, where our religion is then most neglected, where we have truly succeeded in making our name a byword for carelessness and neglect of our glorious hope. Unquote. It was a reform rabbi, Isaac Mayer Wise, who sought to address the problem. With the public support of a number of Orthodox rabbis, and basing himself on a law in Maimonides, the Rambam's, Code of Jewish Law, he issued an appeal, as he called it, for the founding of a legislative-like institution to create a unique Minhag America, a unique American tradition that would guide the development of Judaism here. The appeal appeared in his own newspaper, The American Israelite, in 1855. Quote, we must have peace and union at any hazard or sacrifice, principles accepted. And we shall shout for this great principle until the cry is re-echoed by every heart yet beating for the welfare of Judaism, unquote. Wise called for, quote, a regular synod to meet at least once every three years, and for us to consider this body the highest authority of the oral law, we expect that these articles of peace must satisfy everyone who reasons on the subject of Judaism, unquote. Whether everyone who reasons on the subject of Judaism would have found Wise's solution acceptable, we'll never know, because not everyone found it acceptable when he issued his appeal. Indeed, although Wise succeeded in having an interdenominational group of rabbis meet in Cleveland in 1855 and vote to approve his plan, Members of his own, at the time, fledgling reform movement led the attack against it. America had broken the shackles of communal hierarchy and structure, the argument went, and that was all to the good. Was it really? Think about it on Sunday as you sacrifice hamburgers and hot dogs on your backyard altars of charcoal and gas. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org, www.shamai.org, and email me, please. Pray for our country, and pray for the peace of Jerusalem and all of Israel. If you live in the United States, have a happy July 4th. Don't let this podcast put a damper on the celebration because there still are lots of good reasons to celebrate. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy and stay safe.